you have questions about Connecticut personal injury law, then you've found your podcast. Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean keeps it real. Straight talk. Live from Glastonbury, Connecticut. This is Ryan McKean. Hi, it's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean here. And today I'm going to talk about how I achieved a $2.25 million settlement in a motorcycle accident case. Now, motorcycle accidents are special kinds of accidents in the sense that the risks that motorcyclists face are far greater than the risks that, say, somebody in a motor vehicle faces. A motorcyclist has no protection for things like airbags, seat belts, um, and even a steel frame, a frame of the frame of the vehicle, which could have absorbed some shock. And also, one of the things that many people, many drivers ignore is that motorcyclists are less visible to cars because especially at night where there's one headlight, it's one point of reference and the brain has trouble picking up the distance and the speed that the motorcycle is traveling about. So oftentimes motorcycle accidents in Connecticut can lead to some really, really significant injuries and death. And that is what happened in this case. So I'm gonna walk you through some of the steps that I took. It's important that you stick around to the end to really find out exactly um, what it is that we did to achieve this settlement. Um, initially, the insurance company on this case offered zero dollars. Um, then, a year and a half into it, they offered $250,000. And finally, the case ended up closing for $2.25 million. So we went from zero to $250 to $2.25 million. And I'm going to walk you through that process. So this is a case that happens in Connecticut. And it is a left-hand turn case. It's a case where a uh, motorcyclist is proceeding straight ahead. The motorcyclist has a working bike. The motorcyclist has lots of reflective gear, a helmet. All of those things are on the bike, and he's obeying the speed limit. And a younger driver is is attempting to take a left-hand turn at an intersection and misjudges uh, that turn and the time that he had to make it, causing the motorcycle to drive into the side of the vehicle. And ultimately what happened is the motorcyclist was an ambulance came. Uh, the ambulance um, then called for Lifestar. Lifestar then took uh, the motorcyclist to St. Francis Hospital uh, to receive trauma care. Uh, the care was uh, not able to overcome the injuries, and ultimately the motorcyclist succumbed to these injuries. So the very first thing I did when I got this case is I called the very best accident reconstructionist in the entire state of Connecticut. And accident reconstructionists are very, very important pieces, or can be important pieces uh, to determining what happened in a car crash. They can do things like take measurements, they can um, inspect vehicles, they can talk to police, 
Um, they can they can do a whole host of things to try to recreate what happened in that accident. So when I first heard about the accident, I called the best accident reconstructionist. And one of the reasons why I did this so early, before I even had the police report, was I wanted to conflict the insurance company out of using this expert. I wanted him to be my expert, not their expert. So we secured really the, the, the very best uh, motorcycle or the best accident reconstructionist that I know of. We then we opened up um, an estate, got the administrator, administratrix appointed uh, to oversee the estate and begin really prosecuting the action. What that involved was, you know, really making sure we got all the medical records because you had uh, ambulance service, you had Lifestar, you had St. Francis, you had different treaters, and ultimately you had autopsy records and pictures. You had uh, radiographs, you had um, x-rays, uh, images, all of that needed to be collected because we needed to understand the, the nature of the injuries, we needed to understand what caused the death. We needed to know all of those things, what happened from that impact on them. We'd also contacted an investigator uh, to go out to the scene, to see if there was anybody who witnessed it, to talk to any witnesses, to look to see if there were any cameras in the area uh, that may have picked this up. Um, because as you, as you may imagine, the insurance company says, um, you know, this wasn't, this accident wasn't our fault. Um, you know, he, he, uh, the motorcyclist was the one who, who could have caused the accident. So I really wanted to begin nailing down those very specific issues. I also had, I think, one of the most important roles that I've ever had as a lawyer, which is to really get to know that person. Because if I don't know the person, and I don't know the family, and I don't know the story, how else am I going to be able to convey that to uh, a mediator or a judge or a jury or an insurance adjuster, the people who are going to be making the decisions ultimately on uh, case resolution. So I would go out to the house uh, where, where, the, uh, where, the, where the motorcyclist lived, I'd meet with the family, I'd have meals with them, I would hear their stories, and I would really get to know them and get to know exactly who I was representing because I had not met the man who was the motorcyclist, but I, I really got to know his family, got to know the story because you have to be able to convey the loss. And the only way to convey the loss, the medical records don't do that. The wage records don't do that. It is the story of who this person is, the books they read to their children, how they showed up for their community, how they showed up for their colleagues, who, what struggles they went through in life and who they were, and really, really learn that story. In fact, one night, um, the, uh, the motorcyclist, and he was on his way to work, he worked at um, a supermarket. And he worked overnight stocking the shelves in the supermarket. So I went out to the supermarket, um, just dressed in, in plain clothes at the time his shift was. And I started just, you know, asking uh, the employees at the supermarket who were, you know, in the aisles that I knew he had worked about him um, to try to get 
um, you know, people who the family may not have even known, um, to tell stories and to to really talk about the the worker that he was and the friend and 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 the things that he that he did at his at his job. So I think it's really important for a lawyer who's handling a a death case to get out there and to understand the the lay of the land and to understand who the person is. One of the other things that I did was I obtained the funeral guest book. And this can be a, a very valuable, um, if you have, have a service, a very valuable way to understand witnesses because the family may not even know all the people who show up at a funeral. So you start getting their names, contacting them, and really, really understanding and developing the story. So once I had an understanding of who this person was, I also made sure I had all their financial records. I knew I had their tax returns and their wage statements. And what I did is I hired an economist. And what the economist did, again, the best in the state, top expert, he could project the economic loss. So how much money would this person have earned, what their living expenses would have been, because that's all compensable under Connecticut wrongful death law. Got all, got all uh, that information. And one of the other things, what I, what I ended up doing on some, it was a cold uh, Saturday morning in January, I uh, had uh, the uh, family into the office and I hired a uh, video crew, a crew that was able, that does things called day in the life videos. And what day in the life videos are, are, you know, it is the family talking about their loved one and talking about the loss and it can be very painful, but these videos can convey to an insurance company the nature of uh, of the loss here. So we 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 had we had a we had a professional video done, and I think in different cases you know require different things, but I think that that can be a very effective uh, uh, tactic to convey the loss. And you know I also. Um, you know, I needed to foreclose different things because I knew what some of these arguments were going to be. I knew that, you know, they, the insurance company may say, well, look, the motorcycle wasn't in good working condition. So I found out where he had his motorcycle maintained and I contacted the shop owner and I said, did you know uh, my client? And he said, you know, yes. And I got him to speak to me. He said, no, uh, he, he, he was here three weeks prior to the the accident. I was the mechanic who personally, you know, fixed his bike. He would come in at the beginning of every riding season and make sure his bike was in perfect maintenance. He was so concerned with motorcycle safety and his bike was in tip top condition. So I, I, I even, I, you know, I, I just, I wanted every bit of the story. I needed to know every fact and it's really like a no, uh, no, no stone um, unturned approach to really taking and effectively building a case. So, um, you know, we had, we had, I had, I had that component um, of, of the case as well. I also went out to the uh, state police uh, impound yard. There was a criminal case brought ultimately against the uh, driver of the vehicle. Went out to the state police impound, brought my expert, my accident reconstructionist to look at the bike. 
again, make sure that the bike was in good working order, that the headlamp would have been uh, working because I didn't want the uh, insurance company to say, well, the headlamp wasn't working and that's why our driver could not see him. So I inspected the bike. Um, I had got I had, the accident reconstructionist took uh, pictures, um, documented different things, got readings from the bike. Again, this was at the state police impound yard in Tolland. I had also um, gone out to the accident scene with uh, the reconstructionist on uh, the anniversary of the, the accident itself. And the reason why I did that was I wanted to see what the lighting was. I wanted to see where the sun was at the time. I wanted to see it under similar weather conditions to see what could have been seen, to measure the, the distances um, uh, and, and look at the conditions at the exact time that the accident had happened. So I had a really good understanding of what it is that that driver who caused the accident could have seen. Now, I also appeared in criminal court on behalf of the victim, on behalf of the family. And the family had very specific instructions to me. And the instructions were, they didn't want the person who caused the accident to be criminally punished. They worried about his health. They believed that he had made a mistake and uh, they wanted to, um, you know, they certainly needed the compensation to, to support their family, but they, they did not at all want him to be in jail. That was a big concern. So I appeared um, at his sentencing and I addressed the court and I, you know, asked for mercy and leniency on behalf of the family. I asked um, for the court to make him plead uh, to recklessness, which would have been useful to the civil case as opposed to manslaughter, um, and stood up and uh, addressed the court for the family. And ultimately, um, the court did what it what it wanted to do, um, but that was an important component for the family. So I, 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 I did that um, at that time. Now, I had a bunch of information. I had a bunch of experts. I had seen the bike. I had seen the scene. I had talked to the family. I had talked to um, the, 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 the motorcyclist. We had um, made contact with some of the responding EMTs at that point um, who, who were on the scene. So I wanted to have a really good picture. And what I did is when we filed the lawsuit, we filed um, discovery, so we had some interrogatories, some responses to some basic questions uh, to get some more information um, about the accident. And once I really had what I felt like was a 360 degree view of the accident and how it had happened, I took the deposition of the person who caused the accident. And now that I mean, that, that was hard. Um, it, it's my job to do that and ask those questions. But I had a young man who had made a mistake that had cost somebody his life and was obviously upset by that. So I did my job. I asked what had happened. I walked through it. I asked the questions directly and respectfully of him, um, allowing him to take breaks um, and, you know, talk with his uh, family and his lawyer. Um, but 
but I did my job and I got those answers from uh, from him. And by the time I had done this and I had my expert and I disclosed my expert reconstructionist after he reviewed the deposition transcript, I had to really pin them down at that point as to um, the, the, the liability of this and the magnitude of the loss. What, what ended up happening was the insurance company said, hey, you know what, we want to uh, mediate this case after I took this deposition because they, they knew at this point that they had nowhere where to run. And what I did was I demanded that the insurance company make a good faith initial offer. And I said, you know, look, it doesn't need to be, you know, it doesn't need to be your bottom line or close there too, but I need an initial offer before we come to the table because I'm not going to put the family through this uh, for nothing. And so they made an offer of $250,000 after they had moved off their initial zero offer. And I had done a lot of homework on case value. I had gone through, we have access through our Westlaw for verdicts and settlements. I had gone through similar verdicts. I kept sending them to the lawyer, to the adjuster, to really lay the ground for the amount of money that we were going to be talking about, right? So we go down, we go down to New Haven, we hired a private mediator, former judge, well, well respected. We went down and the insurance company um, offered uh, $255,000, which was just a slap in the face uh, to me, to my clients, to the family, and really to what had happened. $255,000 was not close to the loss or close to the value that I had that I had researched as far as what other cases had gone through and through the story that I knew that I could tell at trial to a, to a jury. So we went back and um, we walked out of the mediation. We said, this is, this, is not, this is not the way, this is not in good faith, this is not what we're gonna go. Walked out of the mediation and the next day we filed papers. We filed papers for a prejudgment remedy to try to attach the assets personally of the insured saying that they that there was not enough insurance that was adequate on this case and really try to force the issue to the um, to the uh, insurance company ultimately we decided not to go forward with that for sort of a variety of tactical reasons that are a little beyond this video and what we got is we got an expedited trial date and an expedited trial date that mediation was in June we got a trial date for January which is which was very fast um, because I know that cases will resolve most of the time it's a bigger case at or near a trial date because that really forces them to be realistic they're going to know that we had done our homework they're going to know that we had our reconstructionist they're going to know that we had our economist they're going to know that we had our fact witnesses our, our supermarket employees the friends uh, that the uh, decedent had had they're going to see the video of what the family had gone through and get a sneak preview of what a jury was going to see. But what I did is I also regrouped and I had a focus group. Focus groups are very, very important um, in terms of how you're going to frame your case. So in the focus group, I had recorded the deposition of the driver. I played that focus group to a group of people that we random people that we had um, we'd run an ad online to uh, to come we paid them fifty dollars gave them dinner and they gave us their opinions on all sorts of things 
what the family was saying, what he had said, what had happened, what they would want to know, so we could further develop some of our discovery. So as we pressed on after our focus group, um, we, we did some more digging, um, developed some more things, and we had really had it, had it lined up. And the insurance company, they knew this. And so they said, how about we come forward to another mediation? And I said, you, you, you've got to be kidding me. After, after the last mediation we just had, no way. I said, I said, that was a slap in the face. His family suffered a lot. His life was worth far more than what you had just offered. And the way you treated us was not okay. And I said, the only way you can make this up to me is to put a very significant offer, opening offer on the table. And we will respond in kind at the mediation. And I said, that initial offer has to be at least $1 million. And the insurance company said, we don't do that. That's not our practice. And I said, too bad. If you want to sit down with us, you want to sit down with a mediator, you are paying for this mediator, you are making a million dollar offer before I get there. And I can tell you that million dollar offer will not be accepted by this family. They hemmed and hawed and ultimately I get a letter saying, we want to mediate this case and we are offering you $1 million. The reason I did that was because mediation is not about coming to some agreement. Mediation is about control. And and I we had sent a deliberate message, having done our work, having known what this was as to what the reasonable value parameters were, and we felt like a million dollars was a fair opening offer. Too low, not acceptable, but a fair opening offer. So I prepared the family for mediation, and I did this uh, in part by really preparing them for trial. I took the family to a court. I showed them the courtroom. I went through you know, the machinations of how a trial would work. I actually took them right over to Hartford Superior Court. Anybody could, uh, could walk into an empty courtroom and show them you know, where a jury would stand. I practiced my opening. I wrote my opening statement, my closing argument. I knew the order of my witnesses. I had worked on my case at a trial college to really develop the themes that I knew would resonate for with a jury. So we had all of this information, we were ready to go to trial, and they had a mediation that December. And at the mediation, uh, through a day of negotiating, ultimately they came to, uh, we came to an agreement to settle the case for $2.25 million. And there were other steps that we took in between, such as an offer of compromise and request for admission and various other pleadings that are technical and a little bit beyond this, but suffice, we did the work, we developed our case, we understood what it was, we knew what was reasonable, we knew what was fair, and ultimately, ultimately, nothing can ever replace the life of a loved one, but we got a result that was fair, that allowed the family to heal, that a lot, that brought them some closure, they were able, we were able to avoid having them deposed, which could have been very particularly painful, not always possible uh, in a case, and we brought some closure. And after we brought that closure, we had to go to the probate court and submit it because any wrongful death case has to be approved by the probate court. So we went to the probate court where the estate was, we got approval for the settlement, and I told the insurance company, no games here. You're, once we get this thing, you're going to give me a settlement within, you know, three days. Get me that check. 
that check then was on on my desk, distributed out to the to the, to the family to allow them to you know do things in their life like uh, buy houses and and um, and really you know move uh, really sort of move forward uh, with their lives uh, with you know I think that the comfort that their uh, loved one would have wanted them to have obviously they he'd want to be there but he'd want them taken care of and so I always viewed it as my mission as I understood my my client uh, even though I had never met him I knew that he would want his family taken care of and that was my promise and my oath uh, and something that I worked on every single day to get them that ultimate result so um, I think that the case settled probably uh, about two years post-accident and some of that uh, was uh, a result of the police report being kept uh, under seal for about a year. The state police have about a year, the, under Connecticut law, have a year to make an arrest. They took um, about that long in this case um, um, to complete their investigation. The state police accident reconstructionist also took a while. So it took us a little bit to get that information. but. Uh, the case settled, I think, about two years after the uh, after the accident, eighteen months. Um, but that's how um, you know take something that that was that that happened, and that's sort of the work that goes in from you know years of not getting any money to two fifty to a million to ultimately two point two five million dollars uh, paid by uh, Liberty Mutual or Safeco in uh, this uh, Connecticut motorcycle wreck. If you have any questions. Uh, please don't hesitate to give me a call, 860-471-8333. You've been listening to Connecticut personal injury attorney, Ryan McKean, giving you straight talk and answering your questions about Connecticut personal injury law. It's serious stuff. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show, and we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find Ryan on Twitter at Ryan McKean, on Facebook at CT Trial Firm, on LinkedIn at Ryan McKean, and on Instagram at CT Injury Lawyer. Till next time.